If you have a Bible, grab it, open it up. If you don't have a Bible, there's some on the table, our gift to you. You can download Bible app on your phone. Go to Matthew chapter 11, because that is where we are going to pick up. We're going to pick up in verse, this morning we're going to get through verses 20 and 24, but we're actually going to start in uh, verse 28, which we're not actually going to preach this morning, but but verse 28 um, uh, sort of, uh, it, it, it kind of is the cap on all of Matthew chapter 11. And so we're going to get there next week, but I want to, I want to start there because it's going to kind of set the tone for what Jesus is going to say to us this morning in verses 20 to 24. So in verse 28, Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, and if you're new here, we, we just love to go through books of the Bible verse by verse. So I think this is like, I don't know, week 65 or something in the gospel of Matthew. We're going to be in it for a long time, uh, but that's just what we do. We teach through books of the Bible. You'll see why in, in a few minutes. Um, but here's what um, uh, Jesus says, sorry, in, in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28. And these are some of the sweetest, sweetest words that we have that our Lord says that have been recorded. They just kind of, I don't know about you, but when I hear this verse, if you haven't heard this verse before, you're going to hear it this morning, but many of you probably have heard it. It just whispers into the, the deepest places of my soul. But look at what he says, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. These won't be on the screen, but verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart. You will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Verse 28, look at this, look at this. It's so good. Come to me. Jesus invites us to come to him. He invites you to come to him. He invites uh, our whole city, he invites everybody to just come to him. And I, and I think the question is obvious, why wouldn't we? Why wouldn't we come to him? Why wouldn't you come to him? Why wouldn't I come to him? Why wouldn't our city come to him? Why wouldn't everyone just come to the feet of Jesus? Why wouldn't everyone just come and sit at his feet and experience his grace and experience his mercy and experience all that he has for us? Like, what is it that causes us to say no to this wonderful and beautiful invitation of Jesus. Well, that's what he's going to unpack for us this morning. In Matthew chapter 11 and chapter 12, Jesus is having a number of interactions with the Pharisees, with the religious leaders. And this is, as I've said every week, a massive theme through the Gospel of Matthew, where Jesus and the religious leaders are having kind of this ongoing dialogue, this ongoing confrontation. And this morning, what we're going to come to is, is, is a bit of a high point in Jesus' rebuke of these religious, and Pharise- uh, religious leaders and Pharisees. And he's going to explain to them why they won't come to him. So this morning's word is going to be harsh. It's going to be a heavy word. I don't write the mail. I, I just deliver it. Okay, I'm just going to tell you what these verses mean and how they apply to us. But what I want you to hear behind the words of Jesus is this, this beautiful invitation that is really the underpinning of everything that he's going to say to us this morning, which is come to me. You see, behind the the harshness of Jesus's critiques against these religious leaders and Pharisees is this deep desire that they would repent. That's what we're going to see this morning, that they would come to him. So while he is indeed going to be direct, he's going to be firm, 
what we need to understand is behind that is not just an angry Jesus. It's not just a, a Jesus who's looking to smite people or to send people to hell or to banish people from his presence. But it's this deep desire that he has that all of us would come to him. Would come to him. So Matthew chapter 11, verse 20, here is how this rebuke starts. Then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. So if you've been with us throughout the gospel of Matthew, specifically in Matthew chapter 8 and 9 is what uh, Jesus is talking about here. In Matthew chapter 8 and 9, Jesus went around, he performed miracles, he healed people, he uh, he calmed the wind and the waves. He, he did things. He entered into a physical world and did supernatural things. He called people to repentance. He did all sorts of things uh, to demonstrate that there's something different about Jesus than every other preacher, every other prophet, every other religious leader. And if you go into John's gospel, I believe it's John chapter 20, where John records much of the same things that Matthew records. John says at the end of his gospel, the reason that I recorded all these things, the reason that I recorded all these miracles of Jesus and all these teachings of Jesus is not so you could just merely be impressed or entertained or wowed or so that Jesus would amass a great following, but I did it so that you would know, I recorded these things so that you would know that Jesus is indeed the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. He's the risen one. He's the one who we just sang about that that has come to seek and save the lost. He's the one who has come to reconcile all those who are far from God back to God. He's the one who has come that God has sent to, to set everything that is out of order back into order and to restore all things back to the way that God intended them to be. That's the reason for the miracles. That's the reason for the teaching. That's the reason for the sending of Jesus. And so what happened in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, what Jesus is alluding to here is that I went to your towns and I preached and I healed and I did things. I performed many miracles, he says, but you did not repent. You did not repent. Now, for some of us, we hear, we hear that word repent, and this is one of those words that, you know, if you're, if you're newer to church, if you're, you know, you got invited here by a friend or this may be one of your first times in church, you're like, that's the, the word that I don't like. That's, that's the reason I don't come to places like this to listen to people like you because you use words like that, repent. We hear the word repent and it conjures up all these images and ideas in our mind of what repentance actually is. And I, I would submit to us that both outside of the church and inside of the church, we, we, need a, uh, we need a renewal of what this word actually means because oftentimes we associate the word uh, repentance with, with external action. So you hear the word repent and you immediately think of a guy standing on a street corner holding up a placard or a sign and he's maybe got a megaphone, you know, he's bullhorn guy and he's preaching to people that he's never met and doesn't know and he's telling them that they're going to go to hell and he's, he's telling them that if they don't repent... They're not going to be with Jesus. And while there may be some truth to that, we might want to question the methodology there. But so often we associate repentance with things like that. Or, or maybe inside of the church, when we think of repentance, we often think of it again with, with sort of this external behavior. This idea that, that it's all about behavior modification. That when Jesus talks about repentance or when we hear about repentance, really what he's talking about is like things like stop sleeping with your girlfriend, stop looking at porn, you know, stop doing things that are going to make God angry. And we hear the word and it's kind of loaded. It, it's loaded with all this anger. It's loaded with all this intensity. It's loaded with all this force. 
Now, now don't get me wrong. You know, if, you've, if you're reading ahead because you're kind of bored with what I'm saying, and you read these four verses that we're going to preach through, there is no doubt that verse 20 is nested in a set of verses where Jesus is going to come. He's going to bring it. He's going to drop the hammer. Judgment is what he's going to talk about. But as I've already said, don't miss the underpinning of the motivation for Jesus to use this word and to call these people to this action. And that is because his desire is not that they would be condemned, it's that they would come to him. And in fact, that's what the word repent means. The Greek word for the word repentance is the word metanoia. It literally means a changing of direction or a changing of mind. And what Jesus is saying to them here is, is you need to think differently. You need to have a different mind. You need to have a different way. You need to have a different way of seeing. What Jesus isn't talking about is their actions. He's talking about the way in which they, they look at the world, the way in which they look specifically at him, the way that they look at Jesus, and then how they respond in light of what they see. So, so when you go back to the, gospel, to the Gospel of Matthew, what you see is, and we'll see this again this morning, that the religious leaders had an idea, the, the, the nation of Israel had an idea of what God's Messiah was supposed to look like. They had an expectation. And it became like a worldview or a filter that they then viewed all of life through. And so when Jesus comes on the scene, he starts healing, he starts preaching, he starts doing miracles, he, he starts performing miracles, and he calls them to follow him. They reject him. Why? Because they can't see him as he truly is, because they need a repentance, they need a change of mind, they need a change of direction. Sounds a lot like us. Many of us have grown up uh, in families, we've grown up in you know, in cultures, in times, in places, in spaces. And, and that's informed so much of how we understand who Jesus is. Uh, when I hang out with my non-Christian friends and we start to talk about Jesus and we start to talk about the gospel and they start to like, you know, feed back to me the Jesus that, that they have rejected, right? The, the, the church that they have walked away from, the Bible that they don't want to read. So often I'll listen to them and, and I'll say, if that's what Jesus was like, I would, I would reject him too. I don't follow that Jesus. They, they've essentially functionally made a straw man and then just knocked it over. And for, for many of us, we have a worldview. We, we come here this morning, we sit in this room listening to this sermon, unpacking this text, and, and we come at it with, with a way of thinking, a way of seeing. Uh, maybe you grew up in a family that was hypocritically religious, and that informs how you view Jesus. Maybe you had a bad experience with church and that informs how you view Jesus. Maybe you had a really just a bad experience in life. Something terrible happened to you and that's causing you to be angry and hostile towards God. And it's right now in this moment impacting your ability to see, to think, to, to, to perceive clearly who Jesus is. What Jesus is saying is you need to repent. You need to have a change of mind, a change of direction. You need to shed yourself of that worldview and start to see Jesus clearly. And, and here's, here's where he's going. This whole text in Matthew chapter 11 is going. When you do that, when you see Jesus as he truly is, when you understand him, when, when the Spirit of God comes upon you and gives you the eyes of faith, the ability to see Jesus as he clearly is, here, here's what happens. It's beautiful, it's beautiful, it's beautiful. You come to him. You, you come to him because you're so compelled by his goodness and grace. But that's not necessarily something we can muster up in and of ourselves. That's a work that the Spirit of God 
does in us. And so Jesus is coming at these religious leaders saying, you're not seeing clearly. You're not thinking clearly. You don't understand who I am. You're choosing your own view of the world over the view that, that I am espousing, that I am Lord, that I am Savior, and you're choosing that over me. And his invitation is to walk away from that and walk towards him. And then he goes on, and look at what he says. And what we're going to do here, because he has kind of two, two critiques, and we're going to break them up. So we're going to go verse 21 and 23, and then we'll go back and do 22 and 24. So, so verse 21, here's what Jesus says, okay? He says, Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth, sackcloth and ashes, so Jesus says, woe to you. That's, that's not a good thing, right? That's a further denunciation. There's a sense of righteous anger, holy indignation uh, from Jesus against these religious leaders. And, and the towns that he references here, he, he references Chorazan, Bethsaida. Then down in verse 23, he references uh, Capernaum, which we'll get to in just a second. Uh, that, that was like the functional Bible belt at that time. That, that made up most of the region of Galilee. That was essentially where Jesus had done most of his miracles, where he preached and, and performed all the miracles and done most of his public ministry. And that was the places in which these people chose to reject Jesus. That's what he says right here in verse 21, right? He says, Woe to you, Bethsaida. Woe to you, Chorazan. For if the miracles were performed and you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So he gets a little bit more specific in verse 21 uh, than he was in verse 20. Now go down to verse 23 and look at what he says here. And you, Capernaum, which is uh, essentially the buckle of the Bible belt, okay? This is where Jesus did the, the most of his ministry. In fact, if you go back to Matthew chapter 8 and 9, you'll see a few times where Matthew references the fact that Jesus was in Capernaum. Will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. For if the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained, they would, it would have remained to this day. So pay attention here to what Jesus is doing. He, he lists off three cities where, where Jesus, where he had gone to perform, to preach, to perform miracles, to heal people, to do ministry, okay? There was Tyre, there was Sidon, and there was Capernaum. So this is the religious community. This is the, again, the Bible belt, Capernaum being the buckle of the Bible belt. This is where Jesus was. This is where all these guys lived. And he says, uh, it, you got, I went here, I did ministry, I preached, I performed miracles, and you didn't repent. But if I had been in Tyre, if I had been in Sidon, if I had been in uh, Sodom. Wait, did I say Tyre and Sidon when I was talking? Okay. Chorazon, thank you. Bethsaida and Capernaum. Bible Belt. Tyre, Sidon, and uh, Sodom. These were places that the people that Jesus was teaching and preaching to, they would have known right away where these towns were and what these towns were all about. These were the most pagan communities. If you thumb your fingers through the pages of the Old Testament, these were the most pagan communities that the nation of Israel came up against in their history. In fact, Ezekiel chapter 28, uh, the prophet Ezekiel makes a prophecy about the nation of Tyre, and he references them in, in terms of calling them equal to Satan. Right? Everyone's familiar with the story of Sodom and Gomorrah through the book of Genesis, a, a community that got completely destroyed because of their unwillingness to repent and come to Jesus because their depravity was so great and their, their unwillingness to love Jesus, serve Jesus, and follow Jesus. It was so great that God had to actually destroy them. Now, now don't miss what Jesus is saying here, okay? Don't, don't miss what he's saying. He's saying, those people were bad, but you were worse, your inability to recognize who I am 
It means you're even worse than there. These people were as far from God as anyone could have imagined, but you're even further away. Now, now, why is Jesus saying this? Like, like what, is, what is going on here? And what I think is happening here, if we just kind of stop for a second, slow down, pay attention to what Jesus is getting after, I think Jesus, he's actually diagnosing the human condition with surgical precision that takes our hearts and lays them out on the table in such a way that is like, it's so, he just nails it. Look at what he says in verse 23 of Capernaum. He says, will you be lifted to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. Again, this is a quote right out of Isaiah chapter 14, where the prophet Isaiah is actually making a prophecy about Satan. And Jesus takes that prophecy about Satan and he applies it squarely on the nation of Capernaum. So what is Jesus saying here? He's saying, you saw firsthand my miracles. You heard with your ears my teaching and preaching. You saw me, and yet you refused to repent. Why? What did, what did all those communities have in common that Jesus says these communities were even more guilty of? Pride, arrogance, self-reliance, unwillingness to admit that they had need, unwillingness to repent to God, unwillingness to come to God, to serve God, to love God. And what Jesus is accusing the religious leaders of is pride. He's saying, your pride is not allowing you to see Jesus, to see me as I truly am. Your pride is not allowing you to recognize that you need to come to me for salvation. You see, the religious leaders, they were living under this illusion that because of their station in life, because of their, uh, their being in the line of Abraham, because of the fact that they were born into the nation of God and into the Abrahamic covenant, that they were somehow set apart. They were somehow made holy because of what they have done. And what Jesus is saying to them is actually, no, you're not holy. You're broken, and you need to come to me. Now, think about this with me for a second. If you think that you're a good person, if you think that you're holy, if you think that, that you have done everything right, you've checked every box, you've dotted every I, and you've crossed every T, and then Jesus comes along and he says, well... Actually, you need to come to me. You're going to be deeply offended. You're going to be deeply offended because, because you have lived under this illusion that you have everything figured out, and Jesus is saying, no, actually, you have nothing figured out. And I don't know if you ever have conversations like this with people that, that don't know Jesus, but you, 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 you explain the gospel to them. You explain the reality of the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, and it doesn't make sense. They can't seem to figure out what the, the death of Jesus has to do with them. And here's, here's the, the linchpin of what Jesus is trying to say. The reason that you don't come to me, it's, it's not because, you're, it's not because you, you, you aren't aware of the fact that you uh, need me, but it's because you actually think that you can save yourself. But sometimes it gets even worse than that, and I think that's the case 
for the religious leaders, they actually don't think they need to be saved. So don't miss what Jesus is saying here. And this is really, really, really important. See, it's not, it's not the sin of the religious leaders that's keeping them from Jesus. It's actually their good works. They don't think they need to be saved. So how offensive is a Jesus that says to them, oh, no, you're broken, and you need to come to me for salvation if you don't even think you're broken? See, it was their pride, their self-reliance, their self-sufficiency in their own good works that is going to keep them from ultimately coming to Jesus. And doesn't that sound a lot like us? Fast forward 2,000 years, right? We, We got problems, Right? Climate change. I don't know where you stand on this. I don't know where I stand on this. But regardless, we got climate change problems. And, and do we, as a community, go, man, we need to come to Jesus? No, no, no. We, like, if we eliminate plastic straws and get cloth bags, this is going to be annoying and save the world. We have deep systemic injustice in our world, and we somehow think through political systems, through legal systems, through justice systems, that we can somehow solve these deep problems in the world. But the reality is the more educated we get, the more sophisticated we get, all we do is just get better at figuring out ways to be broken. We just get more sophisticated in our brokenness. But what about on a heart level? What about on a human level, just on an individual level? What about your heart? What about my heart? What keeps us from coming to Jesus? It's not our sin. If you go through the Gospel of Matthew, what do we see? We see that sinners flocked to Jesus. It's our West Coast Canadian nicety, good lifestyle. We're good. I'm a good person. I'm better than most of my friends. I try really hard to be good. I was baptized as a baby. I wave to my neighbors. I eat vegan. I drive electric. I recycle. I run the occasional 10K for breast cancer. I let people in when they're trying to merge. I'm a good person. And none of those things are inherently wrong, except for maybe the vegan thing. (laughs) But but the reality is, we deceive ourselves. We deceive ourselves into thinking that we are good. And so the idea of coming to a Jesus who died on the cross for my sins to save me, our response is, that seems like a little overkill. Save me from what? I mean, we we, we have people that come here, church people, been in church for a long time, and they leave, and... This is what they they say. You talk about our sin too much. 
is too, is too dark. This is why we do that. We have to get to the place where we recognize that not only is Jesus loving, gracious, and kind, and he is all those things, but he's Savior. And the only way to get to the place that we would actually recognize that he's our Savior is if we recognize that we need to be saved. From what? From our sin. If you go back to Matthew chapter 5, I think this verse will be on the screen, but the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus lays out for us the constitution of the kingdom, he starts with, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the people that look at themselves and recognize their deep need to be saved. It's the gateway, the entryway into the kingdom. And listen, there is no other way to Jesus but to first come humbly. What keeps you? What keeps me? What keeps our city from Jesus? It's not our sin and depravity. It's our damnable good works. It's the illusion that we have that we are so good that we don't actually need to be saved. Because we live in nice houses and drive nice cars and dress nicely and dress our kids nicely and just pretend to be good people. And Jesus is saying, if you don't humble yourself, if you don't humble yourself, then woe to you. Woe to you. It's a hard word. It's a hard word. But remember his invitation. Come to me. Come to me. But in order to come to him, we must humble ourselves. So Jesus gives these two condemnations, but then attached to them, and if you thought that was hard... Look at what he says in verse 22. I'll read verse 22 and 24, and then I'll come back and share some thoughts on these verses. Verse 22, he says, but I tell you, let me just say, sorry it's not light and fluffy. Just, yeah. I love you too much to not just tell you the truth, to just read the Bible and teach the Bible. This is why we teach through books of the Bible verse by verse, because I would never pick these four verses to teach on. I just wouldn't. But God wants us to hear them. Verse 22, But I tell you, it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And then verse 24 says basically the same thing, But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on that day of judgment than it will be for you. So in other words, what Jesus is saying here is we have these three cities. We have Chorazin, we have Bethsaida, uh, we have Capernaum. And we have Tyre, Sidon, and we have Sodom. And what Jesus is saying 
is that it's actually going to be better for Tyre, Sidon, and Sodom. These pagan towns that were so far from God, so far outside of his grace, it's actually going to be better for them than it will be for these other three communities, for this religious community that is willfully rejecting Jesus. Let me just pull out three thoughts about this. Uh, The first one is this. While verses like this often cause us to want to reject God, we, we hear this, right? We hear texts like this. Maybe you're new to church and you're like, yeah, the repent thing, that was bad. This is, this is even worse. This is why I don't go to church. This is why I don't, this is why I don't come to places like this because I don't want to hear things like this. This is an offense. Well, well, that's often our response. And believe me, there's a huge movement in evangelicalism right now to, to really like even rethink what, what Jesus is talking about in verses like this and shave the hard edges off his teaching and try and say, well, it was a contextual thing and this is what he really meant and we're not really sure that there's the way that we've traditionally understood passages like this, uh, really the way we understand them anymore. And really all that is is it's cowardly Bible teachers trying to make the gospel more palpable to people who don't want to follow Jesus. And so I actually think that instead of verses like this causing us to want to reject God, I mean, I believe wholeheartedly that verses like this should actually cause us to worship God even more. Not out of fear, although there is a reality that God is a God that we should fear, revere. But this actually highlights for us an aspect of the character of God that I think gets misunderstood, and that is his justice. So, so in the West Coast, you know, Vancouver Island, uh, 2019 religion of Canadian nicety. We, we don't want a God of justice. At least we say we don't. We, want, we don't want a God who judges. We don't want a God who's going to damn people and send them to hell. Like, that's just an angry God. Like, who, who peed in his cornflakes? What's wrong with him? Right? Like, we, we believe that God's good and kind and loving, and he's this celestial teddy bear, and all paths lead to God, and all paths lead to heaven. Like, that's, that's how we view things. But, but let me ask you this. Just think about this for a second. Do you not actually want a God of justice? See, when we hear these verses and they get kind of pointed at us, that's when we recoil. But but as a people, we love justice. We desperately want justice. I mean, just spend like six seconds on social media. And if somebody left a dog in the car for more than 15 minutes, what are we going to do? We're going to shame them all over social media. Why? Because we need to have justice. We're going to virtue signal, and if somebody likes a particular politician or doesn't like a particular policy of the government, what are we going to do? We're going to shame the government. We're going to shame people that ascribe to certain ideologies. Why? Because we love justice. Behind a keyboard, keyboard warriors love justice. We, we love justice when it's pointed at somebody else, but not at us. But, but let, let, let's just think about this for a second. Don't you want a God of justice? Like, just look out at the landscape of our world. Like, think about all the brokenness that exists in our world. Could you actually worship a God that just turned his back and his eye on all of those things? Of course not. I want God to bring justice to this world. If you read the story of God, the Bible, from Genesis to Revelation... This is the story. God made the world good, right, 
and perfect as it should be. He put us in there. We screwed things up. And then the rest of the story is God rescuing and redeeming humanity and all of creation to restore it back to the way that it was intended to be. Revelation chapter 21 paints this picture for us of creation where there's no more tears, there's no more hardship, there's no more anger, there's no more sickness, there's no more cancer, there's no more brokenness in the world. Now, let me just ask you, do you want that world? We want that world, right? How is that going to happen if God doesn't judge? He has to judge the brokenness. He has to remove it in order to restore the world. Could you worship a God who didn't judge? Who just let everything slide? You ever see that parent? Right? You look at that parent. And they let their kid do whatever they want. They're probably in your community group. And you're just like, yeah, that's the greatest parent ever. I love, like, they're awesome. I aspire to parent like them. You're like, no, they're morons. Why don't they discipline their kids? Why do they let them stare at their phones for four hours a day? Why don't they make them eat their vegetables? Like, what is wrong with them? Imagine God was like that. The reality is, the brokenness in our world, and this is what Jesus is getting at here, it all starts right here in the human heart with our pride. And so there's this sense in which God is a God of justice, and I understand how we recoil. I understand how it's hard for us to hear, but, but the reality is he's going to make everything right one day. And don't forget his invitation to come. Come to me. Second thought out of these verses is this. And you have to do a little bit of work to see this one, but, but what Jesus says here to you and me is that those of us who have heard the gospel, in the case of in the context of these verses here, those who had seen Jesus perform miracles, heard his teaching, seen his ministry, and don't miss this. There's a greater degree of responsibility on them to respond. So to the towns of Corzon and Bethsaida and Capernaum, they, they saw Jesus. They heard him teach and preach. They saw him performations of who he was, and yet they rejected him. And what Jesus is saying is it's going to be worse for them. It's going to be worse for them. In other words, the greater... The amount of light that you've been exposed to, the greater the responsibility that you have. And so some of you have, you're, you're here, you're, he, you're hearing this, and, and I, don't know, I don't know why you're here. You're here because you're intrigued, you're, you're here because your parents make you come, you're here because your spouse makes you come and you want to keep the peace. I don't know why. And there's nothing. There's no response. There's no movement towards Jesus. There's no response to him, which is an invitation. Like, come to me, come. To use a phrase that my mother used all the time of me, it just goes in one ear and out the other. Jesus is saying it's 
going to be worse for you. Hebrews chapter 10, the author of Hebrews says this, verses 26 and 27. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, then no sacrifice for sins is left. But only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume all the enemies of God. Let me be very clear about what I'm not saying and what this verse is not saying. The Hebrews verse and Jesus' words. There is not a limit to the kindness and grace of God. It's limitless. You cannot outsin the grace of God. But there is a reality for all of us. This isn't just a, hey, I prayed a prayer at camp, or, or even, hey, I'm a follower of Jesus. There, there is a reality that we will be held accountable by God for our lives. Which leads me to my third observation of these two verses, and here's where I'll end, and I'll invite the band to come up as I do so. This is an invitation. This is an invitation from Jesus to us to come. To come to him. To soberly evaluate our lives. To soberly evaluate how we feel about Jesus. To soberly evaluate how we view him, how we see the world, how we think about him to repent, to have this metanoia, this change of mind, this change of heart, to see him more clearly, and then to what? Do exactly what he's invited us to do, which is come. Come. Come to him. I don't know if you can hear it in my voice, but it is certainly in my heart like a a trembling. Do not hear, do not hear a Jesus who is looking to condemn you or smite you or send you away. but rather a Jesus who invites you to come. Let's pray. I'm just going to give you a moment. on your own.
Jesus, we I don't even know what to pray. We need you. We thank you that you're not content to just leave us as we are, but you're like a loving father in pursuit of us. Like a loving father who has a wayward child is not content to just sit on the couch, eat potato chips and watch Netflix, but you hunt us down. You've pursued each and every one of us. That's why we're sitting here, because you have come after us. You found us wherever we were, and you called us. And us sitting in this movie theater right now is evidence of your grace. It's evidence of your mercy. It's what the early church fathers called the hounds of heaven hunting after us. You're not done. You're never done. Well, it doesn't always feel great. The reality is we desperately need it. It would be so unloving of you to leave us as we are. But it is your desire to make us more and more like you. To conform us into the image of the likeness of your son, Jesus. And so there's things we need to leave behind and there's things we need to step into. And Lord, we thank you that you empower us and give us the grace to walk away from those things and walk into the new. Lord, well, I, I don't enjoy this moment. I long for it. I long for it because left on my own, well, I'd still be right where I was. So don't stop pursuing us. And for those of us who need to come this morning, who need to heed your sweet and gentle words, come to me. Would your spirit allow us the grace to do so? It's in the mighty, wonderful, righteous, gracious, loving, and kind name of Jesus that we pray. And all God's children said, Amen. Love you. We're going to respond now. Uh, we're going to sing to Jesus. We're going to give, and Dave already talked all about giving and how you can do that as a response to the grace of Jesus. And we're going to take communion. We do this every week. And this is, communion is literally our come-to-me moment. It's literally this opportunity that you have to stand up in your seat Come out to the aisle. Come to the front. We're going to literally come to Jesus. We do this every week because we literally need to come to Jesus every week. And when you come to the front, you're going to see two stations. One will have a cracker, which is 
uh, a picture or a representation of the broken body of Jesus. And the, the, other, uh, the other part of the station will have wine or juice, whichever you would prefer. And you, you're going to take the cracker and just dip it in the wine or the juice. The wine or the juice, which is a picture of the shed blood of Jesus. It was done for us. It was done in our place for our sins. It was to save you because you need to be saved. And there's this beautiful picture that is painted for us of what took place on the cross as Jesus took his last breath. The Apostle Paul describes it in 2 Corinthians like Jesus becoming our sin. He became our sin. This is why Jesus on the cross said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's because in that moment, Jesus became our sin. And when Jesus became our sin, the Father actually turned his face away. He turned his face away from Jesus. Because he bore our judgment. He bore our wrath, the righteous justice of God. And in that moment, God was beginning to do his work of redemption. Everything sad was going to start coming untrue. That's what the resurrection is a pointer to. And, and so we ultimately have this opportunity, this choice, this, this option as we come forward to take communion. Here, here's what we're saying. Jesus, your life for mine. Your, your death for mine, your resurrection with the hope of mine in the future. But, but don't miss this, and this is something that we don't highlight every week, but we're going to highlight it this morning. The judgment you took, that was mine. That was mine. And so this is literally, for some of us, a come to Jesus moment. This is literally a moment for you to get up out of your seat, maybe for the first time. And say, I no longer want to take my own judgment. I want Jesus to take my judgment. So let's come to Jesus together. Let's stand and respond.